Yes, we are. Well, okay. Uh, Some of us who were born quite a while ago will know the name Jack Benny. Uh, For those of you who weren't, Jack passed away, uh, he was 80 uh, when he passed away in uh, 1974, so it's quite a while ago. He was an American comedian. He started his career actually playing violin on the vaudeville circuit. Uh, you know, just going around from little, little Berg to little Berg and, and, and making a few bucks. But he quickly became known for his comedy, and he just had a real gift with it. And a lot of the comedy that he had was centered around his extreme frugalness. In other words, he, he, his character that he, that he, on stage, was he was a cheapskate. He really was. In real life, he actually was a very generous man. He was not that way at all. But his character was. And one of his TV shows, it was actually before television and then it was repeated on TV, one of them was a sketch where Jack is, is being held up on the street and the crook holds a pistol out and he says to him, your money or your life. Jack just stares at the guy. The guy says, what, didn't you hear me? Your money or your life? Still no response. And the crook's annoyed. He says, I said, your money or your life. To which Jack replies, I'm thinking about it. I'm weighing my options. <laughs> thinking it over. The joke, of course, is that he was so tight, he would weigh his options even in the face of a gun. Now, in real life, we just simply wouldn't do that, would we? No, we, the, answer, the correct answer is no. We would not do that. Life is far more important than any, any cash you might have in your pocket, uh, assuming you still carry actual cash. That's going to become less and less. A physical threat to your life, like, like a robbery, would, would, for most of us, would just make it easy to part with a few dollars. Most people just wouldn't hold on that tightly. But aside from those extremes, when it comes to money, it might be easy to trust God when there isn't a lot at stake. But when the stakes are high, it can be tempting to trust money. Unless you're like Jack Benny. Uh, We don't have it on our money, but U.S. currency, everything produced since 1956 when uh, President Eisenhower made it law, Everything produced on U.S. currency since 1956 has the motto, In God We Trust, on the back. Every piece. It kind of seems a little ironic to put that on money, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, But for many of us, it just isn't true. We might say we trust in God, but our actions show in what or in whom we trust. And for many of us, our trust is in something else. It could be in things. It could be we're relying on people. I'm fine in my life, but if this relationship goes bad, I'm going to be lost. What do I do? It could be that. And it's very tempting, too, to trust in money or in assets. Uh, For a large part of my life, actually, uh, my early life, my trust was in money. I didn't have any. But that's what I wanted it to be. Um, I, I, my goal 
when I, when I started working was to make enough money to live in a lifestyle that I could enjoy. Still waiting. <laughs> uh, before, that's before Jesus got hold of me, though. Before he got hold of me. I was doing that, but I was doing that. And just before Jesus got hold of me, I had a, a, a really good job. Nice, nice job. Good job. Nice company car with a credit card for all of the fuel. A brand new home. Lovely wife, two awesome kids. But there was always, it seemed, more month than money. That trust thing, we wouldn't come right out and say, yes, of course, yes, we are trusting in money and not God. We wouldn't say that. It sneaks up on us, though. It sneaks up. Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter 12. He said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And trusting in money can sneak up. In our culture, and, and even, even in the Christian subculture, there are some common false beliefs about money. For example, the belief, it may be, you, may be a secret belief, something you don't share among your friends, the belief that money can bring us happiness. Now, maybe you wouldn't come right out and say it, but here's a question. Rhetorical. Could even just a little more money make your life better? And most of us would say, <laughs> yeah. So even though we say money won't bring happiness, um, well, um, hmm, maybe we believe it a little. Another way money slips into priority in, a, in our lives is the belief that when we have enough, we'll f we feel secure. Of course, enough varies from person to person. Uh, many of our, our parents, if you're older, or grandparents, if you're younger, lived through the Great Depression of the 1930s. Unemployment rate in Canada in the first five years of the 1930s was 30%. And one in five people depended on government assistance just to survive. A lot of people who went through that Great Depression were driven by it for the rest of their lives. It scarred them. And to them, more money equals more security. My own family was like that. My dad was like that. Is it a good strategy to depend on money? Well, fast forward to the global economic crisis in, that began in 2007, which now we call the Great Recession. The market crash that happened there was brought on by, uh, the, the world economies just collapsed and it was brought on by the bankruptcies of some huge investment firms like uh, Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and a dozen others who traded in high-risk financial products, especially one called subprime mortgages. Um, but when things plummeted, they lost everything. U.S. stock markets alone lost $8 trillion in two years in value. Eight trillion dollars. 
home values plummeted. Retirement accounts vaporized. Canada didn't fare as poorly as our southern neighbor, but no countries escaped without some financial pain and loss. And if there ever was an exposure of the false god of money, I think that was it. But why is money such a struggle for us? When we say we put our trust in Jesus, why is money such a struggle? Well, according to the Bible, which is the best place to find the answer, the reason it is, is that the Bible says it is the number one competitor for our hearts. First Timothy, Paul wrote in chapter 6, he said to this to his little young disciple, he said, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That verse is often misquoted. It's misquoted as, money is the root of all evil. How many people have heard that? Oh yeah, sure. Everybody says that. But that's not what it says. Money is not evil. Money is amoral. It is a commodity. It's neutral. Money is not the root of all evil. The verse says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And money can be used for good, or it could be used for ill. It's the love of money that leads to the other abuses, abuses of power, of sex, of, of other sins. The Bible has more to say about money than any other subject. Does that surprise you? Yeah, it does, actually. Um, in their Bible, there are about a roughly 500 verses about prayer and about faith. There are more than 2,300 on money. <laughs> yeah, what? 40% of Jesus' parables are about money. He, he knew the problem it was. He knew the pull. So how important is getting our relationship with money right? Jesus said it's, it's of primary importance. He said in Luke 16, he said this, No one, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Last week, um, we talked about the, uh, this, it was a false concept. But this false concept that God exists to serve us, it's the other way around. But some people also believe that God exists to help us acquire money and things. And that is the roots of what is popularly known as the prosperity gospel. And while it's true that God wants to bless his people and make us prosperous, that's not what the word meant. It didn't mean wealth. Getting rich was not what God meant about that. But I want to just clarify, in case you didn't hear it, about the money not being evil. God is not against people having money and things. Not at all. It's what we do with them. But what God hates is when money and things have his people. When those things control us rather than us 
using them wisely for God's glory. Two, uh, there's, out of the two stories, many of them, uh, there's two that we want to look at today, uh, both from the Gospels, one from Matthew and one from Luke. And it's both about, uh, it's money tales, I called it. Uh, the first is from Matthew chapter 19, and, it, and it's about this, an intelligent guy. He's a well-educated young guy. He's really, really rich. And uh, we're going to read from verse, uh, through, through that from 16 to 21, first of all. It should be up on the screen in the New International, or you could please follow along in your own. Just to make sure that I'm actually reading to you from Scripture. Okay. okay. Uh, just then, he says, just then, a man came up to Jesus. This is just after he told him not to shoo away the little kids. A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Does that sound like he's looking for an out? Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now when you look at it at first, at this list, it seems like the, this, this young man, was, he's ticking off all the boxes, the ones that he knows he's doing. Uh, by his own testimony, he said he was doing most of what Jesus said was required. But he must have known there was something else lacking. Because he's still feeling that. He isn't certain he will have eternal life. He's got to check with Jesus. But Jesus, clear, he identifies the problem right away. He says to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. Give to the poor. <laughs> then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He challenges him to choose his master. And his response to Jesus is quite revealing. In verse 22, When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. At this point in his life, the young man was not ready to take the plunge and put his trust in Jesus. He didn't follow he went away, sad. Now, we, Matthew doesn't tell us what eventually happens to him. We just don't know. He, he disappears from the storyline at this point. But perhaps I think as, maybe as Jesus is walking the, watching this fellow walk away and he's sitting there with his disciples, he, this, he uses this fellow as a teaching point with his followers. Verse Right after that, then Jesus said, verse 23, said to his disciples, 
Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. First century Israelites believed that wealth, money, was a sign of God's blessing. I think that's why Jesus had to repeat it and build on his statement when he said, it's hard, again I tell you, it's, and then he gives the other example, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Money can get between us and God. And money, at that point, it becomes a God, small g. It becomes an idol if it gets between you and God. So that's the first example. Now, the second money story we want to look at today it's from Luke, and uh, this man wasn't nearly as upright as the first guy. The first guy is doing a lot of good things. You know, he's ticking off the boxes. Not this guy. This fellow's name is Zacchaeus. Uh, he was a contractor. He was a tax collector working for the Roman government. So there's one big strike against him right there. Uh, practically speaking, though, he had a license to steal because no one really knew what the tariff and tax rates were that Rome was imposing on them. The only one who did was Zacchaeus. And because nobody knew the actual amounts, he could pad his bills and he could just keep the excess for himself. And so he's sitting at his tax booth on the road into Jericho on the day, uh, collecting tariffs on the road that Jesus is coming to town. And that's where we pick up the story. Luke 19, uh, starting at verse 3. I think 19. Get in the right book, it's Luke 19. And John 19. So, he's there at his booth. He's wealthy. Verse 3. He wanted to see Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Wow. Imagine how he felt when Jesus invited himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. To come and eat food together, to have table fellowship, was a huge deal in Israel. I think the words blown away would come to mind. Certainly would be if I had been him. I mean, why would Jesus want to associate with such a well-known sinner? He knew what tax collectors were like. But interesting, 
Look at the difference between this story and the first one. He doesn't, go, he doesn't sell, tell Zacchaeus to sell all his possessions, give everything away. No. He just invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Now, everybody watching this knows who Zacchaeus is. Everybody watching this. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. I don't know if they would have said it with a sneer. Probably. But look what happens next. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, verse 8, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Wow. Earlier in Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus in the, um, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, sermon he gave on the side of a mountain. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the full sermon. But in chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Question for you. Who was hungrier? The rich young guy or Zacchaeus? Yeah, Zacchaeus. His response to his critics shows clearly how his heart has been changed. Before he met Jesus, Zacchaeus was all about the money. When he saw Jesus and he heard him and he wanted to follow him, chose to follow him, Suddenly, money didn't seem to matter to him at all. This, this corrupt tax collector was so hungry for salvation and fellowship with Jesus that he easily let go of the wealth and took hold of what was far more valuable. No contest, no comparison. And that is why Jesus responds to the crowd this way. This is verse 9. Jesus said to him, while everybody else is standing there and listening, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's in the covenant, he's my people. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Before, he was lost. Now, he's a son of Abraham. What happened? <laughs> well, what happened is Zacchaeus got his world completely reordered in a short time. You know, excuse me a sec. We, uh, I, I'm, I'm a guy that, how can I put it this way? I'm distractible. Um, 
You know, like I'm one of the, 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 the cute cartoon that shows the dog when a squirrel runs by and it goes, squirrel! That's me. But I'm also, I also take rabbit trails. I, I, I can get off topic. <laughs> you, you know me. I'm glad you love me. But um, it's easy to drift when we don't stay focused on the things that are important to Jesus. We all can do that. We can drift. And our hearts drift toward um, other things. Like uh, we focus on careers, on people, on everything we have to accomplish, on all the have-tos that we have in our lives, all our needs. And we can forget what's truly important. But when we give our complete attention to God, praying, worshiping, thanking Him, seeking His direction, um, when we go through the same life, we hear God speak to us and God orders our steps. But when you don't, you can drift. Ah, but when you do, we stay close with to God. The, the temporal things just, they don't seem quite as attractive. The shiny things don't seem quite so shiny. And we begin changing our understanding of what these things are for and who actually owns them. So, what is the secret of being content? Paul said he found the secret of being content no matter what his circumstance was. And he put it this way. He said, I can do all things through him, Christ, who gives me strength. But the secret of being contented is putting Jesus first. First. Uh, it, Paul said it to Timothy again in 1 Timothy 6. This is just a couple of verses after the one we, we saw earlier. He, he told his, Timothy at this point was the, young pa the pastor of the church at Ephesus and had taken over there. Paul established the church and now Timothy was, was leading it. And he, he's writing to him and he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Uh, everybody's heard what Bitcoin is. How many of you really know what Bitcoin is? Yeah, it's not that easy to understand. It's a cryptocurrency. It, it actually doesn't exist as a coin. It, it's a virtual money. It's it was created, actually, it it was created in the wake of the Great Recession by an unknown group. Nobody knows who actually created it. But it was a way around the control of banks and governments. It was to find a currency that couldn't easily be traced and could be mine. Uh, if you purchased Bitcoin at its peak on April the 15th this year, April 15th? Yeah. You would have paid for one Bitcoin. There's, there's 21 million of them. That's all there are in the world. If you, one Bitcoin would have been $79,334. By the 7th of June, it was worth $40,597. In six weeks. Anyone who bought on April 15th knows in a visceral way the uncertainty of wealth. Don't put our hope in money. We don't. 
We put our hope in God because God not only wants to provide for us richly, He wants us to enjoy what we have, not constantly be grasping for what we do not have. When we trust in God alone, we learn that. We learn that He provides us with what matters and with what lasts. Not when we trust in God plus money, not for that matter in God plus anything, but trust in God alone. And when we do, He will order our steps we have, because we have things in the right order. David in Psalms, uh, Psalm 24, started it with this. He said, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. So instead of seeing what we have as belonging to us, what if we were to see it as all belonging to the Lord and ourselves as stewards or good household managers of what we have been given? Another psalm, I think it's Asaph in Psalm 50, just guess, said, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. Um, I don't need any cows right now, one guy said. <laughs> but, but, but it's all his, it's all his. But when we do that and we see it that way, then we can, we can take the advice that Paul was giving Timothy after verse 17 in chapter 6. It's up here. Command them, this is the second thing he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and to be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Yeah. Wow. The Bible is pretty clear. We are called to give generously. And I think one of the reasons it is one of the reasons it says that is that otherwise we would start trusting the money until it became our God. But when we see our possessions not as our own, but as entrusted to us, then we can make them available to God for His uses and His glory, then they won't hold us hostage. We will be able to manage them and we will be able to, to make them good, useful servants to us and not serve them. And when they can do that, when we can do that, make them into great tools to help people, then we can bring glory to God. Yeah. Every day when we do that, what it shows is that we're putting God first in our lives. Why? So that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray.